0: Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously.
1: Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat, brothers and sisters. Good morning. It's great to see you. I mean, you could stay standing if you want. That's totally fine. That'd be awesome. Uh, My name is Mike. I want to welcome you to our church community. If you're new, oh, look at this. Thank you. It's like refurbishing the whole room right there. That's amazing. Hey, um, I want to welcome you to our community. We, if you're new, you've picked a heck of a Sunday to show up. Huh? Because we are in week two of looking at the big, scary book of Revelation. And we're not just studying Revelation, we're studying how to study Revelation. And so last week, we actually introduced the idea of biblical genres, types of literature. And we're arguing that the kind of genre that Revelation is, takes it out of the category of being about all the future stuff that we're, many of us are obsessed on, and puts it back in the category of how the rest of the Bible is treated. So what we're going to do today is we're going to take that, those ideas we explored last week and we're going to apply them to the rest of chapter 1. Now, we love questions and we love interruptions. Today, though, I'd love to get through the material first before we do the questions. If you want to text questions in, you can text them in. We'll accumulate them. We have a podcast that we do on Tuesday morning called Journey Now. And uh, often we'll deal with questions there that we don't get to you're raising your hand in the room, that's fantastic. My friend Susie will be around. She will hold the microphone, and we will have a great discussion. Sound great? (laughs) Oh, boy. Okay, well, let's go to Revelation chapter 1, shall we? Let's just do this. Welcome to fall. I don't know who put this up there, but thank you. Welcome. Fall, welcome. We welcome you with praise, too, not in the same way. That's my wife, ladies and gentlemen. She chose this. It says a lot about her, don't you think? Um, Oh, did you say you chose a skinnier version? Is that what you just said? You didn't choose the outfit? The outfit? This is what priests wore in the Old Testament, babe. Sorry. Anyway, enough of this nonsense. Let's get into the text, ladies and gentlemen. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Now, I had a woman come up to me last week, so wonderfully thoughtful. She says, I'm going to try to keep an open mind about this. Like many of us, she was raised in the kind of left-behind understanding, uh, futuristic-like position of the book, and we're presenting something different than that. And I'm not just making it up. There's a book table out there, and then there are loads of other scholarly resources if you're really interested. But I'm just going to plow through chapter 1, kind of showing off a little bit of, of how we should be understanding the text, as well as what the text is saying. So Revelation 1, verse 1. The first word of the book of Revelation is the word apocalypsis. And that word, we translate apocalyptic or revelation, but it means to uncover or unveil something that was hidden. Have you ever seen a movie... Where the ending makes you rewatch the entire movie. Right? Sixth Sense, anybody remember that one? Usual Suspects. Like, the, uh, really good movies will surprise you at the ending, and then you have to go back and relook at the whole thing. That's what Revelation is doing. There are loads of surprises here, but they're not of the calendar kind, it's about how the story fits together with Jesus at the center. And notice, there's just one. It's the revelation. So it's not revelations, it's just one. And that's a huge point that we're going to explore more fully. So this is the revelation from Jesus Christ. Now that preposition can either be translated from or about. And, um, and, and the scholars really debate this, but a lot of them have come to the conclusion it's actually both. Jesus is the source of the revelation. It comes from Jesus, but it's also about Jesus, as we're going to see. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Jesus, to show his servants, John, what must soon take place. Now, freeze frame this little sentence, what must soon take place. The minute we get a time reference like that, Good Americans start going, oh, soon, it's soon, when is it? Let's start looking at the calendar for soon. And I want want to spend about five minutes saying that that's now not how to understand the time references in Revelation. All right? So there are seven references to coming soon. All right? Go ahead and put them up. 1-1, what must soon take place? 1-3, because the time is near. 1-7, even those who pierced him, like those who crucified Jesus will see him. That's a soon reference. Otherwise, I will soon come to you. I am coming soon. The things that must soon take place. Behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. We'll just say it again. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Now, seven times... Anything attached to the number seven has incredible significance in the book of Revelation as we're going to see This reference I am coming soon either meant That he was literally coming soon in the first century and there's a whole group of people that understand Revelation It's called they're called preterists who understand Revelation as being almost exclusively fulfilled in the first century or What that, the word soon isn't, shouldn't cause us to look at a calendar, but rather should understand the urgency behind what's happening. When Jesus announces the coming of his kingdom, do you remember he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, near can either be a time reference, like lunch is near, hopefully. Or it can be a space reference like this little table is near. As it happens, it's a spatial reference. The kingdom was near because Jesus was near. So when you're close to Jesus, you're close to the kingdom was the idea. The way the soons work in Revelation is similarly. When Jesus says the kingdom is near, it means your focus is now. There are two ways to reckon time in Greek. One is kairos, which means special, unique time. And there's chronos, which just means ordinary time, chronology. When they use the word near, we're talking about kairos time. It's urgent time. Like things should be dropped because of the urgency of what's happening. It's importance time. It should not cause us to go to look at a calendar, though. If we want to make it a calendar claim, well, then the soon reference should have been in the first century. So soon here doesn't mean like, hey, get out your watches. These are devices that many of us older folks wear to tell us the time if we're not looking at our phone. It doesn't mean get out your calendars. Those were paper products back in the day. It means instead, live urgently. Now, for, for proof of this, um, I, I want to contrast how many of us have been taught to understand Revelation and its time references with how Jesus tells us to understand his coming. right, so Jesus was pretty clear on this. Here's Acts. It is not for you to know, disciples, the time and dates the Father has set by his own authority. Now, how is it that we've done nothing but set times and dates? When Jesus clearly says to his original disciples who ask, is it time for Israel to be restored now? It's not for you to know. But in case that isn't clear enough, Jesus spends Matthew 24 and 25 talking in parables about a king that goes away, and there's a delay when he comes back, but the consistent thing about when he comes back is that it's always a surprise. Nobody knows. So he says this over and over and over again. Next. No one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the sun, but only the Father. Seems pretty clear, doesn't it? Next. Next. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Next. So you must always be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. So the reason we don't take the must soon take place and turn that into a calendar claim is because Jesus rules out calendarizing as an option for his people in preparation for his return. What he suggests instead, and this is what soon means, is that you are always to be ready. So, the stance Jesus wants us to live under is the imminent return and and fulfillment of the kingdom. And calendarizing uh, violates, excuse me, the stance that we're to take. Makes sense so far? You don't have to agree? but I just want to understand words like must soon take place. Now, next. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Jesus made it known by sending his angel to the servant John. So it's God to Jesus to the messenger angel to John. It's the kind of the delivery system here. Next. And John testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Next. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this what? And as we talked about last week, prophetic literature in the Old Testament isn't predictive always, or primarily. It's meant to warn and comfort that generation with what could happen if they don't change their ways. So it's very easy for Seth to know, my son. Hey Seth, if you don't stop doing that, this is what I'm going to do. Is that a prediction? It is, but it's dependent upon him. If he does what I've warned him against, the prediction is fulfilled. If he doesn't, it's not. That's what biblical prophecy is. So remember, uh, Revelation is first apocalyptic literature, and we looked at that in depth last week. Secondly, it's a it's prophetic literature. It's designed to confront and comfort the generation of people receiving it. And this is what the author means when he says blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Remember books of the Bible were not meant to be read. They were meant to be listened to. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart. Now notice To bless somebody who reads it and bless somebody who takes it to heart means that this original audience would have understood what it meant. Because they were blessed if they took it to heart, which presupposes, of course, they knew exactly what was being talked about. Seven times, either the reader or the audience is blessed in the book of Revelation. Meaning that this is literature that would have been meaningful and significant to the generation that was receiving it. Would you agree? Okay, very slow and hesitant. Because the time is near. Now, that's the easy part. Next verse. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you. Now, what does that sound like? Sounds like a New Testament letter, correct? New Testament letters had the designation of authorship, the designation of receivership, some sort of salutation, and then usually a doxology. This is exactly what we find in Revelation, which means that this apocalyptic prophetic piece of literature takes the form of a circular letter to seven actual churches. And the biggest assumption governing circular letters is that they would have made sense to the original audience. If the only people that understand them are us, conveniently, 2,000 years later in America, we've placed ourselves over the text in ways that I think the text itself rules out. So, this is exactly how you start a letter, grace and peace to you from, and then he's going to introduce us to the Trinity, from him who is, next, and was, and who is to come, reference to the Ancient of Days from Daniel, And, so that's the Father, and from the seven spirits before the throne. Seven here doesn't mean number seven, it means fullness. So this is the Holy Spirit before the throne. And then thirdly, and from Jesus Christ. So greetings from Father, Son, and Spirit. (coughs) Who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth? Now man, we could spend, I started with 76 pages of notes this week. Because all those things... Are really important next then he does a doxology this is exactly what Paul does to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and a priest to serve his God and father to him Jesus be glory and power forever and ever amen so this is all letter stuff next then we get this And instantly we're transported into, oh, okay, this is this kind of book. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. And you're like, oh, yeah, now we're getting into the good stuff. This is what's going to happen someday. The problem is that this is all taken from the Old Testament. All right, next. So let me just show you where the verses come from. Look, he is coming with the clouds. We just read that. That actually comes from Daniel 7. Next. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That comes from Zechariah 12. Next. On his account, the tribes of the earth will wail or mourn. From Zechariah, the land shall mourn each family by itself. Now here's the big point I want to make today. Are you ready? Because we got some questions last week that said, hey, yes, there's a lot of symbolic language, but isn't that just because the author is trying to describe realities that don't exist yet in his time? And the only thing available is symbolic language. And, and my counter to that is, no, the, the symbols aren't looking forward, the symbols are all looking backward to the Old Testament. And so I just want to keep reiterating that point. That if we assume that, the, that all Revelation is dealing with is the future, then we're very much missing out on the deeply layered meaning that the author is trying to instruct us into about seeing the revelation of Jesus of Nazareth. Alright? So we get a vision that's pulled from, from two different Old Testament passages. Next. Then we get a personal address to the audience. I, John, your brother and companion in suffering and kingdom and patient endurance. Now, notice how those three are linked together. Is that the kind of Christianity Americans preach? Probably not. But for them, this was the reality suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. I, John, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Some think he was exiled there by Rome. Others think he was there just to proclaim the gospel. We're not sure. But he says, I am your companion in suffering churches. Next. On the Lord's Day. Now that is Sunday. And that was a major change from Christians who initially were Jewish, right? Sabbath was Saturday. The Lord's Day was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. So Sunday was the day they started to worship. On the Lord's Day, I was in the Spirit. Now, in the Spirit isn't some random phrase. It's used a bunch in the Old Testament, but it's used four times in Revelation to introduce each major section of the book. Here we go. It's used in 1.10, used in 4.2, 17.3, and in 21. There are lots of different ways to chop up the book. One of the ways is to look for all the fours. Another way is to look for the sevens. This phrase, in the spirit, is one way uh, to read the book, to see this happen four times and introduce like four sections of prophetic visions. I just want to draw your attention to it. You don't have to under- understand it. I'm just trying to show you that this book is meticulously arranged as a literary masterpiece. Every word has significance, but it's not the significance that as Americans we want to give it. All right, this is very much in dialogue with first-century Roman propaganda and very much in dialogue with the Old Testament now being built around Jesus of Nazareth. So, go back if you would. On the Lord's Day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, there are several times where John will hear a voice and then see something. So, the voice said, right on a scroll, Old Testament image, don't go back, Nope, stay there. Perfect. Jacob, you're awesome. Could you imagine trying to keep up with me? Good Lord. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to seven churches. And these churches, let me show you a map. These were real churches. These were not eras of church history. These were literal churches on a postal route in Asia Minor. And the one thing these churches had in common is they were in cities that had been infected by the imperial cult and the worship of the Emperor Domitian. So Kevin's going to introduce us to one of these churches next week, just as a paradigm example of how to understand the rest of them. And the churches are going to be symbolized as lampstands. Here's the lampstand. Right? This was found in the temple. And so the churches are now symbolized by this, which is a very obviously Jewish Old Testament image. You with me so far? Awesome. Now we're doing Great. We have about 10 more minutes. And then maybe some questions. What's that? Well, lunch is near. So she said, take my time. I think that'd probably divide the house, that opinion. All right, next slide. Here, we're just going through verse by verse. Here, God Almighty speaks for the first time, and he only speaks one more time. At the beginning of the book and the end of the book, he says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come, the Almighty. So, by saying it at the beginning of the book and the ending of the book, and using the first letter in the Greek alphabet, Alpha, and the last letter in the Greek alphabet, Omega, he's saying, I'm the point of the book. You with me? Can, you couldn't bracket it any more clearly. He only speaks twice, the Father does, and it's to say this. Next. Now John heard this voice saying, grab a scroll and write what you see to the 11 churches. But then he turns to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, what did I see? Seven lampstands, which are what? Seven churches. I know, Fascinating. And when I turned and I saw the seven lampstands, next, and among the lampstands was someone like the son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. Next. The hair on his head was white like wool, which is a compliment, as white as snow, things I will never have. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like a bronze, glow were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In the right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Right. Now this is where we go. Okay, now we're in Revelation, baby. This is what I'm talking about. And I just want to show that this whole section is drenched in nothing but Old Testament references and allusions, right? So don't write this down, of course, not that any of you are writing anything. (laughs) How could you? But I just want to go through that little vision, all right? The robe is kind of from Exodus. It's a priestly image. Reaching down to the feet with a golden sash, that's from Daniel 9 and 10. The hair on his head was white like wool. That's from Daniel 7. His eyes were like a blazing fire. That's from Daniel 7 and Daniel 10. His feet were like bronze. That's from Daniel 10 and Ezekiel 1. His voice was like rushing waters. That's Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 43. In his right hand, he held seven stars. We're going to meet the stars in a second. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. That's from Isaiah 11 and 49. And his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Think that's an allusion to Judges 5. Now, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, what do you do with an image like that? Oh, he's describing something he just has no words to describe. No, he's got plenty of words to describe. In fact, the predominant Old Testament text referred to here and throughout the book is Daniel 7. So let's read it together. As I looked, Daniel said, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. What a cool name for God. I love that. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. Ooh, that sounds familiar. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were ablaze. How cool that it's a mobile throne. I like that. River was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands of thousands attended him. 10,000 times, 10,000 stood before him. We're going to meet that image in Revelation 4 and 5. The court was seated. The books were open. We're going to meet books in Revelation 20. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words, the horn was speaking. Now, earlier in Daniel, we're introduced to a beast, several beasts, actually. We're going to meet a beast in Revelation, but it's straight out of the Daniel text. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown in the blazing fire. That's going to happen later in Revelation. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but they were allowed to live for a short time. We're going to get to that in Revelation. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one what? Like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds from heaven. Now, if you're in the original audience, you know exactly when John is using these images. You know exactly where it's coming from. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And then notice what the Ancient of Days does. Dude, this is so important. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power, and peoples of every language worshipped him. We're going to meet that in Revelation 4 and 5. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. We're going to meet that phrase. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. We'll meet that phrase. So the image in Daniel, guys, this is so important. The image of Daniel, we should, I mean, we should take a whole sermon on it, which would be joyful, is that there are different statues that represent beasts or kingdoms on the earth. The one, the latest one is Rome. Well, yeah, Rome, for the contemporaries of, of John. And then there's this rock that gets carved out of a hillside and thrown against the statues, and they go—and they're obliterated. And then we meet the Ancient of Days who takes the seat of power, and we meet the one like a son of man who now shares in the Ancient of Days' as authority, and that is the summary of the book of Revelation. We think all these symbols have to do with Apache helicopters, and I'm just telling you, no. He's channeling the Old Testament and interacting with Roman propaganda, as we'll see. Makes sense so far. In fact, next slide. There's a really, the beginning of a really incredible comparison between the father and the son here. God, of course, was the one who is. Jesus refers to himself as the firstborn of the dead. God is who was, I am the Alpha. Jesus talks about I am the first, saying the same thing a different way. God is the one who is to come. Jesus is referred to as the one coming with the clouds. God is referred to as the Omega. Jesus said, I am the last. God is referred to as taking his throne. Jesus referred to as the ruler of the kings of the earth. So there's this like in, in theological circles it's called christology what's your view of jesus this is as high a christology as you could have that jesus shares the throne with the ancient of days and is the one talked about in daniel 7 and what must soon take place is the fulfillment of that image the coming of the kingdom to demolish all other the kingdoms of the world oh next Almost done. Yeah, we did white beards. Yep. I need to make that one again. Now, one last point about sevens. We've got seven messages to how many churches? we got seven blessings. Then we're going to meet seven seals, seven trumpets. Then there's a bunch of unnumbered visions. We're going to meet seven plagues. Then there's some more visions. What's fascinating, though, is that every time a seven is mentioned. We get some sort of vision celebrating the triumph of God at the end of each of the sevens. So we just, we just met two sevens, blessed seven times in seven churches, and here's this image of Jesus taking authority. Make sense? Time functions differently in the book of Revelation. So I give you, I asked the first service what this was, and a boy maybe five years old goes, that's made in China. Yeah. And so is most of this, right? I mean, so it was just it was just kind of funny. Economic policy as a five-year-old. Now, as you know, these are nesting dolls, right? Where the rest of the dolls are contained in the large one. So you open the large one up. Oh, and there's another one. Oh, and you open that up. And oh my goodness, there's another one. And you open that up and there's still more. How how far does this go? And then, oh, there's another tiny one. And oh, my goodness. And here it is. That's as tiny as we can go. This is how the sevens function in the book of Revelation. Every seven, every seventh contains the next seven. So all the sevens are unfolded in the seven that came before. So you're like, oh, here we go plagues. And you open it up. Oh, now there's seven bowls. Seventh bowl. Oh, now there are seven seals. Make sense? So the, 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 the way time works in Revelation is like this. <laughs> I love it. The way time works in Revelation is like this. It's moving forward. It's telling a story. But it's using something called recapitulation, where it's telling the same story using multiple images multiple times. Are you with me on this? And so when, when you read Revelation, I want you to think of this. It comes as one big book, but then you read a seven, and you're like, oh, oh, well, buried in that seven are more sevens, and oh, buried in that seven are more sevens, and it keeps going, and in between each section are declarations of the victorious nature of God. We have ten minutes for questions, and then I have a small point to make. Yes, sir. Fired up. Great question. We're going to get a microphone to you
2: i what that,
1: that Recapitulation. So Google it, and and, and, it, and it's just the repetition of a story using different imagery over and over and over. Yes, sir? If I, if I could ask a clarifying question. So oh, I, always. Yeah, I think what,
2: when you were talking about the images of the Old Testament, I think people could read it two ways. just want to make sure I'm reading it the right way. One yeah. way is John is just pulling stuff to share a story. The other way is John seeing something, but he's referring back to the story to describe it. Which one would you say is the right way?
1: Well, thank you. I, I think that's a really incredibly intelligent question, young man. I actually think it's a bit of both. I think John is seeing something, but what he's seeing is the fulfillment of all of these images that were draped all over the Old Testament about what God was going to do when he ushers in the kingdom. And I think he's pulling from, from prophetic literature to describe what he is seeing, but that those reference are references backwards instead of forwards. Does that make sense? That's a great, great clarifying question, truly. Yes, ma'am? Isn't there
0: uh, somewhere in the Bible where it says, these are the signs of the end of the ages? Oh, And that's yes. what people keep referring to. They're like, oh, we're meant to know because this isn't
1: there. Yes. So oh, thinking. that's so good. And that is worthy of a full sermon. So what Jesus will do, and and this is the big debate. In the end of Matthew and Mark, a little bit in Luke, Jesus has, it's called a little apocalypse, where Jesus starts talking, usually introduced by when the disciples go, hey, look at this temple, isn't it awesome? And Jesus is like, well, it's actually going to be destroyed here pretty soon. And these are the signs that will accompany this. Now, what's fascinating is most of us take that image and, and think it's talking about the second coming. I think that stuff's talking about the fall of Jerusalem, because he talks about when you see the abomination of desolation, which is referring to a ruler in Daniel, Antiochus, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who desecrated the temple, that Rome's going to do the same thing. Flee, it, it's, it'd be horrible if you're pregnant. All of that actually came true. Uh, in 70 AD, when when Rome finally conquered the city. So, in one sense, I think what's happening in those passages is that Jesus is describing, listen, when you see Rome at the gates, get out of here. In another sense, I think what Jesus is doing is introducing us to a readiness that's supposed to characterize his people no matter what era they live in. Does that make sense? It's a great question. Now again, are there there thousands of people who would say I'm an idiot? Absolutely. Uh, Dozens of you are right right here. (laughs) And so it's okay, it's okay if you don't understand it or don't buy it. All I'm asking for is an open mind to take revelation out of the realm of fear inducing and provoke revelation into hope inducing. That's the goal of the whole thing. Yes.
2: I apologize, I was momentarily distracted um, oh, in the no. answer that <laughs> you just gave so you might have answered it. But is he doubling down on the same thing that Daniel was saying or has what Daniel was prophesying has that you know partially been fulfilled in what Jesus has done and it's being it will yeah. be fully
1: yeah, fulfilled? Yeah, yeah. Oh that's like, so good. Genius. Thank you. Okay, backstory, and then hopefully something like an answer. When Jesus introduces the kingdom of God, he uses very weird language to do it. On the one hand, he's saying all the time, it's at hand, it's at hand, and it's at hand. He says to the Pharisees, you're looking for signs, but it's already among you. And then there are other times Jesus talks about, at that time the kingdom will be like. And so Jesus talks about the kingdom as if it's here and it's coming. And both. So the end times is the time between those two events. So we've been living in the end times since Jesus of Nazareth ascended into heaven. So what's he talking about? Well, I I think some of it was fulfilled in in the destruction of Jerusalem. But while it's here, and and see, that's what I think Revelation is saying it's now and not yet. That same posture that it's happening right now. That Jesus is becoming king over the earth again. And there's still bits of fulfillment that wait for us in the future. What we're not supposed to do, though, towards those bits of fulfillment in the future is try to figure out when they're going to happen. But rather live instead, refusing to accommodate with the present world system because we're to be people who embody the future that's coming. Does that make any sense at all? 80%? 80%? That's better than I thought. More would get us into all sorts of interesting, interesting questions. Um, so is Revelation fulfilled? Yes and no. And so it's the same question. Has the kingdom come? Yes and no. And I know that's terribly frustrating and confusing, but I think that accurately presents the teaching. We can talk more later, because we're going to come back around, because we're recapitulating. So we will be back over this ground again in the future. We've so, got a
0: text question.
1: Uh, yeah. Well, oh, that's fine. Sorry. I mean, this side of the room has really been amazing. I mean, I so kind of need fine. some you, attention you, over you here. Can be so. the, you can take that side. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> over here.
1: <laughs> I heard the voice of an angel, and I turned, and I saw Susie Lynn! And it all fits together.
0: <laughs> How do you respond to those very religious people who push the book of Revelation on you and say things like getting the vaccine is just a step closer to getting the mark of the beast? Or they say you have to be on guard and have to have your heart in check because we're living in the end times. They say if you're not living right, Jesus won't acknowledge you. I've lost friendships because of this thinking and judgment of me.
1: Oof, okay, let's go one at a time. Okay. Just first issue was vaccines?
0: Well, people who put, I mean, I think it all kind of
1: yeah, goes yeah, yeah. in
0: hand yeah, that they're per the book of Revelation, we're living in the end times. So based on our no, decision No, per making Matthew and, and Luke and
1: John and Acts, we're living in the end times. Okay, that's been true for 2000 years. Next
0: well, and so well, then what do we do with when we're told that getting the vaccine is a step closer to getting the mark of the beast? Okay, this be is wonderful. Be on guard, have now, your heart and check. No, my
1: friends, let's be, uh, listen, I had a, I don't know if I said this earlier, but I had a wonderful woman come up to me and say, I'm keeping an open mind. And, and she so invited me to not, to love people and give lots of grace and permission to people who don't agree. So we're going we're to gonna marinate in this like for two or three months. What we're going to see about the mark of the beast, uh, well, first of all, Antichrist isn't mentioned in the book. Rapture is not mentioned in the book. The mark of the beast has nothing to do with anything that could be happening today. The mark of the beast was a mark that Domitian said that you had to get to conduct business. And there's historical evidence for this mark. So I will show it to you when we get there. All right? Now, as a symbol, could you take the mark of the beast? Sure. But can you go, well, that's the vaccine? I don't, I don't think you can. Revelation was not intended to foster conspiracy theories. Revelation was co- intended to foster communities of hope and faith and love in the midst of suffering. So I, I totally disagree. Like a guy came up after the first service and said, a lot of my friends want to know who the beast is or who the Antichrist is. And I'm like, well, read First John. There have already been many Antichrists. There's not just one. And they were already afoot in the first century. So are there Antichrists today? Sure. I've been Antichrist too. Don't get all proper English on me, my love. All right. Yeah. All right. Yes, we're done. Last question.
2: First of all, I wanted to compliment you. I appreciate the way you started off, especially with how you were talking about the fact that what we're doing here, uh, when we're talking about the book of Revelation, putting it in genre context, absolutely beautiful. Uh, Well, that's not me. That's smart people. Also want to talk about Alpha and Omega. And uh, you you, you reference that. Jesus says that he didn't come to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. So that's a lot to do with what you were talking about, Daniel being re-referenced here in Revelation as well. Yeah. And then just the sevens, your Genesis 7, on the seventh day, God yep. rested. Oh, and just so wait. this is where we're talking about the beginning. Even in the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning of Genesis, we talk about the sevens there. Yep. And, and I'm not going to numerology or anything hokey, crazy like that, but just saying the fact that God's already pointing that out at the beginning of the Bible, and then bringing it all the way to fruition with the sevens that you were talking about, and just to kind of compliment uh, exactly what you're saying, because it's
1: spot on, in my opinion. Sir, you can compliment me anytime, so you are more than welcome to do that. Now, a couple of thoughts as we close. Thank you, and I know there's so much more, and again, don't take my word for it, all right? There are books out there that you can read. I can point you to references that argue a different point. Fantastic, fantastic. And that we can do so very little in 35 or 40 minutes together. And I realize it's much easier to go to a church that is just telling you how, you know, to kind of simplify your life and put it together and not have to sit here and wrestle with this incredibly complex stuff. I just think people, Christians in America, are colossally underestimated. I actually think a lot of us do care very deeply about understanding the text correctly. And to do that, you've just got to do more work than just open it up in English. So I'm very proud of you, and I am unbelievably honored to be a part of a community that allows this to take place. The goal isn't that you agree. The goal is that you're just introduced to another perspective that I think that I've experienced is just far more compelling, faithful to the text, and hope-inducing. Now, we had a question last service well, what about the millennium? Are you post-millennial or amillennial or pre-tribulation or mid-tribulation? And and she was asking it knowing that those are kind of trigger words for a lot of us. And my response, and this is how I want to close, was the fact that those are the questions we ask when we read the book shows how far off we are. There are literally, I mean, out of 400 verses, how many verses are about the millennium? And we have whole theological systems about when it is. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. End of story. If we study this and aren't more compelled by who Jesus is, then we've missed the point of the book. Let's have all the opinions on millenniums and tribulations. Great. But if that's where our head goes, then we've studied it wrongly. Even if you do believe those things are to be understood that way. Those are not the primary exclamation points of the book. So we want to remind ourselves every single week that this thing is the first, the last, the Alpha, the Omega. It's about Jesus. And so we do that by taking the bread and the cup together. So we're going to bring our worship team back up. I'm going to shut my mouth. We're going to open our mouths in praise. You are invited to get up and walk around the room. Giving stations, prayer stations, communion stations. I want to invite you all to take the Lord's Supper. As the prayer requests reminded us, you're here with a bunch of people who are living in really tough circumstances. So you are not unique in the darkness, the weakness, the doubt of your life. You are more than welcome. And we come to the table as guests. No no one's earned their way. No one has the perfect theology. No one is perfectly obedient. That's why Christ came to begin with. But this is how we recenter our whole community on Jesus. And so we're going to sing some songs. You're invited to get up, take the Lord's Supper. And then there's a young man named Seth, who's going to close the service with a rousing benediction. All right, so let me pray. So Father, help us to sift and sort all of this. This is so much information. Oh my goodness. And it's so contrary to how many of us were taught. And Lord, the last thing we want to do is erode confidence in the scriptures. But we also, Lord, want to reimagine what engagement might look like if we've set aside our previous assumptions and listen to it talk about itself. So I just pray that you would help us do that with gentleness and kindness and great respect for each other as we're in different ways of processing this. But the biggest thing, Lord, the biggest thing is that you would help us to fix our eyes on Christ in unique and different and powerful ways, and that we would be a community that actually carries hope, and not in some cliched way, but in a deep and meaningful reality. So to that end, we worship you now, in the name of our Christ, amen.